This is Our American Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, a eulogy, a parting thought about a dying loved one. And this story comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. And the name of the piece, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems. But once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash. Mountains in whatever direction I looked. And awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told
told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, Yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped to prevent some 200 suicides. During his career, he was called to the Golden Gate Bridge about twice a month to respond to someone poised to jump from that bridge. Here's Kevin recalling one such encounter. We received a call of an individual over the rail and standing on it's called the cord, C-H-O-R-D. And I was the sergeant on duty. We worked 12-hour shifts. It was starting to, to get dark out. I had a new commander for our area office. He's the guy in charge. And I told him, hey, I'm going down there. It's almost 6, but I want to make sure everything goes smooth and see if I can do anything to help. So he goes, okay. He goes, but I want to go with you. He was new. He wanted to see this. We get down there. One of my officers is engaging this individual over the rail. He is standing on that cord, hanging on to the cables and looking down. So I just wanted the officer to know that I was there. So I touched his shoulder. He looked back and saw me. But the gentleman he was speaking to looked back and looked right at me also. And he said, you're the negotiator, aren't you? No, sir. I'm just here to help whatever we can do to get you back over and get you some assistance. He continues to look right at me. He goes, you have three master's degrees, don't you? I bit right into this one. Yes, sir, because that's a hook. That's what we can use to extend the time with these folks. So the officer, being the very smart and intelligent man he did, sees the guy engaging me, so he does this. He steps to the side. I would have done the same thing. Now it's on me because he's engaging me. He's under the influence of alcohol, very emotional as most people are up there. He's going with his mood up and down and up and down. And I'm going with him, and it doesn't, it's not going very well. I'm not able to connect with him that well. He's not giving me much information. And he keeps looking down. And I tell my commander, you know what, this isn't going very well. This, this may go bad. You might want to step back in case he goes. He goes, no, nope, I'm going to stay right here. Okay. So I keep going, and we found out we, what we call hooks, things that I can connect with him, whether that's family, whether that's something sports that we can connect with. We found out about his family, and I continued with that. How would your family feel, do you think, with you gone? And we expanded on that. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, he just turns around, holding on that cable, looks at the water, and starts doing this heavy breathing. And to me... That's a big indication that he's going to go. So I had heard of a technique, and the only time you could really try this is during this type of situation. So I did this. Hey! It's to snap him out of that sequence of what he's doing, whether they're counting, heavy breathing, and it worked. And it worked well. And he turned around, and he was angry at me for doing that. But we reconnected, and I said, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I don't want to see you do anything. So we talked about this for a while and kept going about the family. I kept focusing on that. He decided, okay, all right, you listened. I'm going to come back over. So he did on his own. Fantastic, fantastic. We got him some help. We take him to a hospital. And that's not a movie that he's involved in. That's real life. And he's got to figure out how to make a connection. And if you noticed, he used the word listen. And he did, because you can't connect to somebody if you don't listen to them. 
And you can't go into these things with a plan because everybody's different. And how calm he is and what he's like, it's just, he's just already, you know, he's got that, just the perfect demeanor to figure out how to do that. And my goodness, he's not in a rush. Here's Kevin telling the story of another encounter with a would-be jumper. Coincidentally, this man was named Kevin, too. There again on the Golden Gate Bridge. I received a call of a man over the rail. I responded with my motorcycle on the sidewalk. Down there, I saw him on the sidewalk. When he saw me, right over the rail, I thought he was gone. Around the two towers of the bridge, it's just this small pipe. Kevin stood on that small pipe for 90 minutes. During that 90 minutes, my knees were hurting like hell because I was kneeling down, talking to him so he could look down at me so I can empower him. That's what this is all about. For most of this, except for four or five minutes, I listened. Kevin spewed things out and was crying. His birth mother had abandoned him. His depression, all these things, school, being bullied, all these things had taken a toll on him and nobody had listened. I say it's very easy to listen, but actually it's really not. If you're giving them their full attention and you're hearing what's going on, instead of your own agenda and trying to think of, okay, how can I top that story? What can I do? What's my response going to be? If we can just take this in and listen, it's very difficult to do. We're not taught to listen. We're taught to read, write, do math, all these things. We are not taught to listen. How we do things when we're up on that bridge, we use active listening skills. Open-ended questions, paraphrasing, summarization, I messages to connect with these folks. High emotions equals low rational thought. So we try to stretch that time out as long as we can. If I would just walk up and say, go back over here, what are you doing? For one, the uniform scares people. It does. I know that. We walk up slow. We approach slow. I ask their permission to come up and speak with them. I'm going to empower them as much as I can. Whatever hooks that I can get, family, friends, sports, whatever it is, we're going to go with that, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to expand on that. We expand that time, allow the rational thought to come back up, and this is basically how it works. This is what we do. Some of the damaging phrases that we do not use, calm down, really gets people angry when you say that. More, you should. You should. They don't like that either. Nobody likes hearing that. You should do this. You should do that. Doesn't work. Have you tried this? Works much better. Have you tried this? Why? Places blame. Makes them very angry. Makes us angry. Why did you do that? Why are you here? You're not getting the understanding of what's going on. And I understand my favorite. Do we really? Do I understand when he's over that rail? No, I may have depression, but it doesn't go to that level. I don't understand. But, so if I understand you correctly or if I hear you correctly, and they'll tell you how they feel, and we can correct that. Very, very important. Kevin did come back over that rail that day after that 90 minutes. We were invited to New York City, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he spoke there. And he actively speaks now 
to people about what happened during his life. How did he get to that level? He didn't even know how to get to the bridge. He doesn't remember even driving to the bridge that day. But he got there, and he was over the rail. And it wasn't I saved him. I have saved nobody. Nobody, not one person. I may have been a conduit, but these people come back over the rail. It's them doing it. They're the ones that make that decision. It's easy to let go and fall. Very easy. It's much harder to come back over that rail. He's had those same problems when he came back over. They're there. They're not going away. But he faced those. Pulled up his bootstraps. Went head on with them. He still has issues. We all do. But he's here. And he's doing really well. And that's Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped prevent over 200 suicides. And by the way, you can learn more about Kevin Briggs from his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair, or go to his website, www.pivotal-points.com. And by the way, it's so true what he said about listening. It just doesn't get taught. And we're taught how to read and write and perform and debate, but not to listen. You know, in Proverbs... Well, it says no one is as deaf as the man who will not listen. And Stephen Covey had written so beautifully and brilliant about listening and said most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And that skill set that Briggs is talking about, we can all use a little bit of help on that listening skill. And boy, those bad words, calm down, you should do this or that, And so true about I understand. No one wants to hear that. My goodness, this guy should be teaching courses for all of us. Kevin Briggs' story, a California highway patrolman retired, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an 8th grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan. 
during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player. and He enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau, was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach. 
but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive? That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad. John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table, eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima, and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out, and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. 
And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works, and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them, said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine but his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt faint again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. 
I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought. And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work now, fish, he thought. I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair-weather breeze, and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea, and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down, and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head, last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled partway over and then righted himself and swam away. Fish, the old man said. Fish. You're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me, too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. 
On the next turn, he nearly had him. But again, the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man. Or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head, he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know, the old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know, but I will try it once more. He tried it once more, and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised, although his hands were mushy now, and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again, and it was the same. So he thought... And he felt himself going before he started. I will try it once again. He took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it and lifted the harpoon as high as he could and drove it down with all his strength and more strength he had just summoned into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in and he leaned on it and drove it further and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick, and he could not see well, but he cleared the harpoon line and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. Then it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head on his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man, but I have killed this fish which is my brother. 
And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. An American candy store in 1900 looked very different than it does today. Candy was a special treat sold almost exclusively in candy stores. Customers didn't touch the merchandise. Store clerks did. It wasn't displayed on open racks, but glass jars behind the counter. Clerks put the candy into bags, one piece at a time. The varieties of candy included butterscotch, toffee, caramel, molasses, taffy, and hard candy made from boiled sugar. Milton Hershey knew the one thing that was missing, chocolate. Chocolate was sold in Europe, and only a very few affluent Americans had ever tried it. Here's Greg Hengler with the sweet story of Milton Hershey. It's January, 1862. The skinny-as-a-rake four-year-old Milton Snavely Hershey peers out of the window of a shanty at a fresh coat of white powder. Wearing every piece of warm clothing he owns, he marvels at how pretty the usually muddy oil town of Titusville, Pennsylvania looks, draped in snow. Milton's father, Henry, has moved his small family in September, 1860, from Derry Church, Pennsylvania, 250 miles northwest to a hut to make his fortune in America's first oil boom. Milton's mother, Fanny, refers to it as another one of his latest harebrained schemes. In the course of their marriage, Fanny will count 17 business attempts and 17 failures. Here's Hershey biographer, Michael D'Antonio. She followed Henry through a few of his adventures and a few of his failures, and then started to look around herself and say, I'm raising two children. I don't have a reliable husband. I'm not sure where I'm going to live or whether there's going to be food tomorrow. This has to change. Even though Milton is only a shy four-year-old, he is aware of the differences between his parents. His mother, Fanny, is a strict and intensely focused Mennonite from a well-to-do family who made their fortune selling produce and real estate. She works hard, cooking over a tiny gas flame and saving her pennies in a pocket under her apron. She tries to keep the shanty clean and stuffs old rags into cracks in the wall to keep out the cold. His charming father, on the other hand, is a dreamer. 
He doesn't seem to know where the next penny is coming from, but he always has a new get-rich-quick scheme that will get his family out of dire straits. He's always laughing, telling stories, and reading newspapers and books that give him his next big idea on how to make his first million. Fanny hates her husband reading books. She likes to see men working hard, plowing and planting, weeding, harvesting, all the activities her brothers and father carry out on their well-run Mennonite farm back in Dairy Church. After a year and a half in Titusville, the Hershey's are destitute and bordering on starvation. Fanny's brothers arrive in Titusville and take her and Milton back to the Mennonite community in southeast Pennsylvania. Milton's ancestors, who settled in Derry Church, are descendants of Swiss families who came to America seeking religious freedom in the 1700s. The Mennonites are Christians with a rock-ribbed devotion to God and his injunction to gain a living by unending sweat of the brow. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pamela Cassidy. In the Mennonite faith, wealth is a sign of God's grace and that you work hard because that's a way of showing devotion to God. And if you're financially successful, that's simply a gift from God. The Snavelys and the Hersheys trace their roots back to these early settlers. And while the Snavelys are still devout Mennonites, Milton's father, Henry, has strayed from the strict rules of the group. Henry was a dreamer. Though he never had much formal education, he, had, he was well-read and just had a great love of books and always was looking at the new. Um, he had dozens of ideas, many of which came to pass, but Henry just didn't have the perseverance or the money or the connections to make them happen. In 1866, Henry will again move his family 45 miles southeast from their Mennonite community. Fanny hates it. Just one year later, with Henry away roaming, Milton's four-year-old sister Serena will die of scarlet fever. The more wrapped up Henry becomes in his latest venture, the longer he is gone leaving his half-starved family to take care of the farm. Fanny's content to be thought a widow with an orphan son. Milton passes his school days at a series of one-room schools. His mother approves of his vehement distaste for school and books, which she blames for ruining her husband. In 1870, Milton leaves school happily at 12 with only a fourth-grade education. So crippled in literacy, he will leave almost no written records. Having been freed from the burden of schooling, it's now time to get Milton a real job as a printer's apprentice. Milton hates it. Here's senior director at the Hershey Museum, Amy Bischoff. The story was that he did not get along very well with the man that he was apprenticed to, so he threw a straw hat into one of the printing presses to break it so that he could get fired. Milton's mother Fanny and his aunt Maddie know Milton is a smart boy. He just isn't made to be a scholar. They set out and find Milton a job as a candy maker's apprentice for four years at Royer's Ice Cream Parlor and Garden in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 30 miles southeast of Derry Church. 14-year-old Milton arrives with a small suitcase containing two spare changes of clothes, 
two towels, his Bible, and little else. He's expected to work 12 hours a day and more on Friday and Saturday nights. Milton is a natural. He's a hard worker just like his mother, but unlike his mother, his Aunt Maddie has a shrewd business sense. She immediately recognizes Milton's talent and begins planting the idea of him starting his own small business when his four-year apprenticeship is over. And we'll continue with this remarkable story, the story of Milton Hershey, after these commercial messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue with the story of Milton Hershey. And my goodness, sent off to be a candy maker apprentice at the age of 14. And it just goes to that point that we make often on the show. The college isn't for everyone. And learning a trade and a skill is. And my goodness, he became really good at what he did, working and toiling away in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Let's return to the story of Milton Hershey. In early 1876... As America celebrates its 100th birthday, 18-year-old Milton receives a $150 loan from his no-nonsense Aunt Maddie and heads east to start his own candy business in an 8-by-10-foot space in Philadelphia, the second-largest city in the United States. He's quickly joined by his mother and his old family friend, Lebby Leadkicker. Sales are good at first. Milton makes great candy, but he's not a great businessman. After five years of backbreaking work and bailout after bailout from the Snavelys, Milton's father shows up unexpectedly. Henry's youthful optimism has something appealing about it, but it also finds the balance of Milton's bank account plummeting even farther. This time, the Snavely relatives are unwilling to bail him out. That it was not unusual for him to go into the work area and spend 15, 16 hours, go home, sleep for four or five hours, and then come back and start again a new day. And I think it was because it was something new and that was something that Milton Hershey really thrived on. He knew, unlike his father, that if he was going to succeed, he had to put every bit of energy that he had into the business. Milton's father moves on to his next business adventure, mining for silver in the Rockies, and invites his 24-year-old son to join him. With a failed candy business and a longing for his father's company and approval, Milton follows Henry West to Denver, Colorado, and finds steady work in a candy shop. On his first day at his new job, Milton discovers something odd. The candy shop owner does not add paraffin to his caramels. Paraffin wax, made from petroleum, is normally used to help set the caramel candies and make them chewy. The owner reveals that he uses fresh milk instead of paraffin. Not only does it have a better taste and texture, but it lasts months without spoiling, as opposed to the two to three day shelf life when paraffin is used. Here's the executive director of the Hershey Museum and Gardens, David Park Jr. This had pretty tremendous impact on, on Milton Hershey because in those days, of course, they were just you know, shipping the, the candies locally and, and there wasn't need to, to preserve them for any longer periods of time. After a year in Denver, 
Henry boards a train with Milton to greener grass in Chicago and then New Orleans. Both dead ends. With the backing of his mother and Aunt Maddie again, he breaks from his father and starts a candy business in New York City at 742 6th Avenue near 42nd Street in 1883. In a few months, both his mother and Aunt Maddie join him in the venture, cooking, pulling, cutting, wrapping, and selling caramels, taffy, candied fruit, nuts, and fruitcake. Unfortunately, Milton has to close the store in 1886, the year before, Henry arrived and wanted his son to make cough drops. But Hershey Cough Drops, the potential shining star of Milton's confectionery lineup, were a flop. They were good enough lozenges, but New Yorkers already had a favorite brand that was cheaper to buy. Smith Brothers Cough Drops. Milton makes the long, painful train ride back to Lancaster to find the Snavelys have given up on him financially and won't even take him in. Here's the director of the Hershey Community Archives, Pam Whitenick. Um, his mother's family, who had been helping him with financial loans all these years, had reached the conclusion that he was just like his father, just chasing one pipe dream after another. Milton may be a dreamer, but he's also incredibly determined. He pays a visit to his old friend, Lebby Leadkicker, and explains his situation. Lebby sets up a cot, buys him dinner, and the next day, Lebby pays for all the candy equipment shipped from New York and covers the next three months of rent so he can set up his candy operation in Lancaster. Here again is Pamela Cassidy. Milton Hershey never, ever forgot that kind of kindness. And when he comes to, um, up to Hershey to build his new factory, Lebkecker is with him. And he has a place of importance within Mr. Hershey's inner circle. Milton decides that his candy business will not be about making a whole lot of things good, but making one thing exceptional. Soon, his mother and Aunt Maddie join the operation again. As the business grows, he needs more equipment. But after talking to three different loan officers at three different banks, Milton concludes that at 29, with no assets and two failed businesses behind him, he's not a good loan risk. Finally, the Lancaster National Bank agrees to give him the money with Aunt Maddie putting up her house to underwrite the loan. Milton, his mother, and Aunt Maddie work around the clock making caramels in the new facility. But as the 90-day loan period draws to a close, Milton realizes that his best efforts have not been good enough. With the loss of his aunt's house staring him in the face, Milton sets out to sell caramels from his pushcart when a man with a tweed suit and an English accent purchases three pennies worth of caramels. As it happens, this man, Andrew Deces, is a confectionery importer from London. He loves the candy, but is reluctant to make a deal because of their potential for spoiling. Milton guarantees that his caramels will stay fresh for months. Deces takes a big shipment on consignment. So he goes to the bank and he says, I can't pay this and I need even more money because I need to buy more ingredients. 
And the man who he was talking to was the cashier of this bank. His name was Brenneman. Um, he takes Brenneman back to his work area, and it wasn't very impressive, but Brenneman was very, very impressed with Milton Hershey. I really believe in this man, so I'm going to put my own name to this loan. He does that, and about five days before the loan, that second loan comes due, Milton Hershey receives payment from DCs, is able to pay off a loan, and from that point on, it's been a matter of about four years before he's one of Lancaster's most successful citizens. By 1893, Milton Hershey has two factories and is employing 1,500 people. Give them quality, Hershey says, that's the best advertising in the world. On May 1st, 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition opens in Chicago, commemorating the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus sailing from Europe to the New World. The United States has several interesting new foods on display. Shredded wheat, Coca-Cola, Pillsbury flour, Lipton tea, juicy fruit chewing gum, and a convenient new way to eat a meal. It's called the hamburger. But what Milton Hershey sees will not only transform his life, but America itself. While he was there, he saw a demonstration of chocolate-making machinery um, that was on display from Germany. was fascinated by that. Machinery just fascinated Milton Hershey, as well as the new and the untried, and he saw chocolate as that. Milton keeps returning to the chocolate exhibit several times a day and gets to know the creators of the chocolate factory. German chocolate is creamy, unlike the expensive, gritty American chocolate. On one visit, Milton turns to his cousin Frank and says, You mark my words, Frank. The caramel business is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. Here's former student turned president of the Hershey Industrial School, John Mack Eichley. Mr. Hershey was his own man and decided to do what he wanted to do, regardless of what his advisors might tell him. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. And what a story you're hearing, and my goodness, the amount of failure that Milton Hershey encountered, and yet he kept coming back, and finally, through determination, and thank goodness for family, the mother and Aunt Maddie, hanging in there with Milton, too. But what a visionary. Caramel is a fad. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And he had the intuition to know that. There was no data analytics back then. And he committed everything to that vision. Chocolate will be a permanent thing. And my goodness, he was his own man. We will hear more about this remarkable man. And we tell so many of these stories that they're not teaching in schools anymore. From the Steinway family to Henry Ford, right up to Steve Jobs. These individuals making a difference in this country and changing the country for the better. Milton Hersey's story continues here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Milton Hershey. Let's return to Greg Hengler. The more Hershey studies the numbers, the better he feels about his instincts. Just 10 years before the exposition, the U.S. imported 9 million pounds of cocoa beans, and now they are importing 24 million pounds. Here again is Michael D'Antonio and the former CEO of Hershey Foods, Kenneth Wolf. At the end of the fair, the operators of this chocolate factory in miniature could either ship the equipment back to Germany or sell it. Milton bought the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. In the early 1900s, chocolate was really a luxury item that was only affordable by the economic top of the, of the ladder in our country. And I think one of the keys to Milton Hershey's success was that in the back of his mind, he saw making good chocolate at an affordable price for the mass consumer, and he wanted his product distributed everywhere. I think he was the first of, uh, of his kind, uh, certainly in the confectionery industry. And in a sense, in a small sense, I think he was to uh, chocolate what Henry Ford was to automobiles. Then, at 40 years of age, Hershey meets the beautiful, vivacious, and witty 24-year-old Irish Catholic, Catherine Sweeney, or as he calls her, Kitty. After a year of courtship, they're married in 1898 in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in New York. No one is there to witness the event. Just six months after their wedding, it is discovered that Kitty has an incurable disease affecting her nerves. As Milton searches the world for a cure, he also searches for a perfect chocolate recipe. Milton wants to make sweet milk chocolate like the Nestle Swiss Chocolate Company. One big problem, Nestle won't share their secret. What made Milton Hershey so successful was his creativeness, his ability to envision what could be. Um, he got that from his father. Henry was not a successful person, and when his father would fail, he would just say, well, that happened, let's move on, you know, it's not gonna stop me. Milton Hershey got that from his father. Milton returns to his family in Derry Church, where he sets up a lab to work out a new chocolate formula. He uses it as a chocolate coating for caramels. He creates tins of Hershey's cocoa powder and 114 other chocolate treats. Business booms, and as a result, he needs bigger production space but Hershey runs headlong into corrupt local politicians asking for contributions or risk paying high taxes on any land he purchases. Here again is David Park. Yeah, Milton Hershey sold his Lancaster Caramel Company for a million dollars in 1900 to his biggest competitor. And uh, many people think that that's, that's quite a risk that he was taking. He decided just to go entirely into chocolate. Milton takes another big risk and builds his modern chocolate factory back in the pristine rolling hills of his Mennonite hometown in Derry Church, Pennsylvania. There are plenty of cows in the area to supply necessary milk, although he does replace the herd of Jersey cows with Holsteins after painstaking experiments reveal Holstein's milk make a better tasting chocolate bar. 
Milton Hershey's real strength was in experimentation, the unknown. And he approached that not on a scientific basis, but on a hands-on basis by just trying things and seeing what happened. He didn't want to know whether it was possible. He wanted you to try it. And if you failed, well, that was fine. The trying was what was really important. He also envisions a town for all of his workers. He plans everything from the start so that it will be perfect. Before the factory makes one chocolate bar, Hershey lays out the streets. The first two are main streets, Coco and Chocolate Avenues, and he also lays out the parks of his town. He hires architects to design high-quality, one-of-a-kind homes and buildings with electricity, central heating, and indoor plumbing. Companies are created to build a bank, a zoo, and schools. Swimming pools, hotels, a sports arena, golf courses, theaters, department stores, libraries, churches, railway sidings, water mains, a post office, telephone, and sewage systems. Hershey even sets up a widespread system of trolley lines that will spoke out through the countryside to help workers get around town and travel to and from the factory. Mr. Hershey had a, a very strong vision of what he wanted, not only for his chocolate company, but for his workers and the kind of environment that he wanted to provide. And that was a very far-reaching view that he had, certainly um, uncommon in his day and age. Then he rebuilds the massive factory. Its giant smokestacks have his name in big letters. Hershey produces his chocolate on a moving assembly line one decade before Henry Ford. The plant soon sends the smell of chocolate floating through the valley. Each bar is wrapped in a dark maroon paper and the large silver letters read Hershey's. Hershey envisions a delicious milk chocolate candy bar all Americans can afford. They will be sold for five cents at every cinema, drugstore counter, and bowling alley in the country. For 60 years, until 1969, Hershey's chocolate bars will cost just five cents. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. You know, the original Hershey bar is pretty much what we find today in retail settings from gas stations to convenience stores to supermarkets. It's that familiar rectangle with the brown paper and the silvery white letters on it. It was a big success as soon as it was issued. By 1905, the factory is making 100,000 pounds of chocolate a day, and the following year, net sales reach $1 million. The house Milton builds is handsome and comfortable, but would easily fit into the reception foyer of some of the great homes of Newport and Long Island. It's called High Point, but its main feature is where he builds it. He chooses not only to stay within view and walking distance of the business that is his life, but of the people that are its heart and soul. He was one of the first to understand that a big manufacturing facility could be the beating heart of the economy of a local community. And once that community started to grow, people were drawn to it. Always working towards getting his parents back together, 
And despite the fact that they live on opposite ends of his house, Hershey is grateful that they are at least living under the same roof again. Fanny, with her plain clothing and Mennonite bonnet, does the housework and cooking, while Henry enjoys himself. Asked what he is doing while shopping, he chirps happily, Spending Milt's money. A contest is held with a $100 prize to name the town. And so, in 1906, Hershey becomes the official name in the U.S. Postal Records. And you've been hearing this story, the remarkable story of Milton Hershey. And my goodness, his vision for his company and his workers, a man ahead of his time, and that he was in the business of bringing chocolate to the masses at affordable prices, a product that had only been available to the rich before, made him the Henry Ford of sweets, no doubt. In fact, he beat Ford to the moving assembly line. And Henry Ford, of course, did the same thing. Cars were only available to the rich until Ford, through his ingenious use of that moving assembly line, drove the prices down while raising the prices of the average worker's wage. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Milton Hershey's story, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, if you have a figure in history you want us to tell a story about, send it to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. return to the story of Milton Hershey and what a story it is. And let's return to Greg Hengler for the rest of this story. Once Milton and his increasingly unwell kitty come to terms that they will never be able to have children of their own, they begin what will become the capstone of their lives. They open an orphanage and the Hershey Industrial School for Boys is founded. The trust deed states that they will be fed wholesome food, clothed, partake in daily chores, and emphasizes learning through play and physical activity. But the greatest concern for Hershey is the boy's Christian education, which makes his choice of house parents, who will run the orphanage and school, paramount. Both are graduates of Berrysburg Lutheran Seminary. Here's Pamela Cassidy, Hershey executives Bruce McKinney, and William Dearden. I think this really ties into Milton Hershey's sorrows about his own childhood, about um, the time that his parents were separated and he feeling like an orphan. Um, He spent a lot of his childhood moving around quite a bit and he wanted to create a more stable environment for boys who were being raised similar to that he had been raised. He saw it developing while he was alive and he protected Uh, the future of it by the unique trust system that he set up. And to the extent that all of us who have come after him are able to do so, it is our clear objective to shepherd along, to protect and enhance the legacy that he established long ago. In the schools that I went to as a boy before coming to Hershey, uh, an orphan was someone that people pointed out and said, you know, he's different. When we came to Milton Hershey School, we were all orphans. So it became a non-problem. You could forget about that and get on with your life. 
And this gave us a confidence and a real feeling of assurance that if we use our talent, we could make something of ourselves. And Mr. Hershey never let us forget that. Done in secret, Hershey perpetuates the school in a trust with his entire personal fortune, an astonishing $60 million in stock. Here again is John Eichley. It's the only thing that lasts forever, the school and the trust. They could sell the chocolate company, they could sell the park, or anything else in Hershey. But the school and the trust company will always be here. Hershey explains, I am 66 years old. I have no heirs. So I decided to make the orphan boys of the United States my heirs. Certainly Milton Hershey School saved me. You were in awe of Mr. Hershey. He was a godfather figure that you looked up to. I think the crowning thing was uh, when he handed my diploma in 1941 and shook my hand. Today, the private boarding school with 2,000 needy boys and girls is renamed the Milton Hershey School. And with over $12 billion in assets, it is, per student, the wealthiest school in the world. With the success of the Hershey's Bar, in the summer of 1907, Milton creates a new product that will become even more famous, a small conical-shaped drop of chocolate, hand-wrapped in foil and sold in a box. Hershey calls these chocolate drops sweethearts, though shortly after he renames them Hershey Kisses. Here's Pennsylvania reporter John Lucy. It was the perfect size, the perfect shape, the perfect wrapper. It was a hit right out of the box. In the spring of 1912, cutting short his trip abroad to Europe, probably because of Kitty's debilitating condition, Hershey cancels reservations he made on the most luxurious ship ever made. A fast, new, and unsinkable ocean liner. So, the Titanic goes down without the Hershey's. But, on March 25, 1915, Kitty's 40-year-old heart stops. An attending nurse says, Milton was like a madman. He took the death of his wife very badly. And from that point on, he really focuses his attention on his businesses and on the community. Hershey has his defeats. When Bill Wrigley's company begins putting their name on chocolate, Hershey retaliates with a Hershey's chewing gum. And since Wrigley owns the Chicago Cubs baseball team, Hershey tries to buy the Philadelphia Phillies to challenge Wrigley on both fields. The Phillies' purchase fails, and so does the gum. I never lost my temper, Hershey will say, but I did lose money on it. As the Great Depression brought American business to a whisper and breadlines multiply, Milton Hershey is determined that the troubles will not touch his paradise. Instead of firing, he will employ. Instead of retrenching, he will build. Mr. Hershey had a unique perspective during the time of the Depression. And in fact, uh, we are clearly the beneficiaries of a major building campaign that took place at a time when the rest of the country was having very, very severe economic and financial difficulties. Here's John Stover, whose great-grandfather worked at the Hershey plant during the Great Depression. 
Milton Hershey had asked the foreman, he's like, what's this steam shovel doing here? He's like, well, it takes the place of 40 men. And Milton Hershey's response was, well, get rid of the steam shovel and hire the 40 men. Hershey says, think about it. When these buildings are completed, they will create more jobs. The hotel will need cooks and waiters and maids. The school will need teachers. And the sports arena will need cleaners and groundskeepers and hot dog vendors. He was walking through the lobby one day and asked the general manager of Hotel Hershey how many room nights had been reserved the night before. And the manager reluctantly said, Mr. Hershey, 12 rooms. And he said, 12 rooms. Well, we've got uh, 150 here. Let's make certain those 12 people have a very unique experience. With his wife gone, Hershey gives his home to the country club and lives in just two rooms on the top floor. In 1938, Rice Krispies are added to the Hershey's bar, and the Crackle Chocolate Bar is added to the line of products that includes Mr. Good Bar and Hershey's Chocolate Syrup. During World War II, Hershey develops a 600-calorie bar for the American GIs. Through the course of the war, the military orders more than one billion bars from the Hershey Chocolate Corporation. The Air Force even names a B-26 bomber the city of Hershey. Here again is Michael D'Antonio. It was hard in 1940 to manufacture a chocolate bar that could go to the Arctic and go to the jungle, cross oceans, and still be edible. And it's amazing to think of how much it boosted morale for a soldier to be able to open his ration package and get a little bit of Hershey chocolate. On September 13th, 1945, Hershey celebrates his 88th birthday with 14 of his closest friends at the old Hershey homestead. They dine in the room where Milton and his father were both born. Exactly one month later, Milton Hershey comes down with pneumonia and his heart stops beating. Over 100 years later, Chocolate Town USA is still celebrating Milton Hershey's legacy. Every September 13th, the town gathers in Chocolate Town Square Park to honor their founder's birthday. Greatest man ever lived as far as I'm concerned. He's done so much for all of us. He could have just used it up for himself, but he decided to make a school and places for other people. Scarcely educated and contemptuous of book learning, Milton Snavely Hershey founded a world-class educational system. Though he seldom wrote or deeply read, he built a fabulous business empire. Today, we're 80 million kisses and four and a half million Hershey bars are made daily. The Hershey Company earns over five and a half billion dollars a year in revenue. But the human, spiritual, and emotional riches that were the main wealth of this simple man still survive, as the legacy of Milton Hershey continues to sweeten the lives of Americans and chocolate lovers all over the world. Honoring America. The Philadelphia Orchestra Brass. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hingler. And what a remarkable life Milton Hershey's was. And by the way, this is the kind of story that should be told in every classroom in America. Because kids love the candy, 
and connecting it to where it came from and how it happened connects them to free enterprise, to the story of free markets, to the story of American exceptionalism. This is one man's idea. It's his name on the bar. His name. These weren't modern branders who came up with a fake name. He just put his own name on the bar, sold it, and now it's a brand and everybody associates that name, well, of course, with kisses and bars. 80 million kisses still made to this day, every day, and 4.5 million Hershey bars made daily as well, and 5.5 billion in revenue. And yet it's the human side of this man that's so interesting, and particularly his desire to help educate orphan kids and to take care of them, and all because of his experience as a young man. And by the way, scarcely educated, contemptuous of book learning, Milton Hershey founded a world-class educational establishment and one of the most richly endowed. What a remarkable story, the story of free enterprise, the story of one man changing the world and making it a better place, and the story of this town, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and where it came from. All of that here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Newsletter.